0: First of all, you know, just a warm thank for, for coming this morning. Um, it's great to be here. I just think this whole enterprise is such a phenomenally important initiative really, um, and the possibility and the, and the importance of opening up frank conversations about the issue of mobility um, and global interconnection in our time. Um, not for us necessarily to to agree, but also perhaps to kind of push our thinking and I'm hoping that uh, in the conversation that we'll have after my brief presentation, my own thinking will shift a little bit too. Um, Just to say briefly um, where this project comes from. I mean, the topic today I wanted to try and foreground is the kind of impact of the kinds of restrictions on participation, particularly in the labour market and in civic life. Those restrictions, how do they actually permeate into the lives of young migrants? And the research that I'm going to talk to you about, which I'm only going to talk to you about the London at the end of this, it comes out of this uh, project called the EU, EU Martins Project, which was funded by the 7th Framework Initiative of the EU. And what the project has done um, is to collect detailed biographical case studies of the experience of young migrants in seven European um, cities, London, Tallinn, Oslo, Genoa, uh, Barcelona, Gothenburg and Norsey and try and also create a way of doing research that enables the participants to become kind of observers in their own lives. And as a result, I think what we've produced in the project is a detailed and very intimate account of what it means to be a young migrant in today's world. Some general points then before we start to, to get to the texture of young migrant experience. I just want you to list a a series of points, maybe stating the obvious, but I think it's important to be reminded that humankind at this moment is more mobile than at any other moment in history. And that mobility isn't just physical, going through borders and checkpoints, it's also the way in which our lives are globally distributed, the things that we are connected to through the magic of our mobile devices to the networks that we experience and live through and take for granted. The second thing I just wanted to say very briefly is that um, as a kind of passionate Londoner, and just walking across the river this morning just kind of fills my heart with joy. I'm sure many of you had that experience too. You know, remember the river was the great jugular vein of empire, uh, as Peter Lombare once said. The vitality of globalised London, I think, confounds the rhetoric of protectionism and control that is so pervasive at the moment and i think our political and public debate is limited by what i would say you know perhaps provocatively as just unrealistic pr- promises my fear is that our, our political leaders are you know destined to to follow a kind of fate of latter day king canutes who faced with a globally integrated human mobility on a huge and profound scale are are, are kind of sitting on the beach, kind of willing the waves to withdraw, although I don't want to, there's perhaps too much, too many liquid metaphors when it comes to issues of migration, but I think there's something about that unrealisticness um, and the unrealistic quality of of the debate. Now, on the one hand, I also think that um, we need to open up a different kind of debate, but I think one of the things that we've learned from working very closely with the 30 young migrants who are part of our study, is the fact that not only the d- debate about border control and reducing immigration numbers, and it doesn't only relate to the actual checkpoints at the edges of the political territory, but actually those um, concerns are starting to permeate what it means to live inside the political territory and come close to the intimate spaces of everyday life. And I'm going to give you some illustrations of that. Lastly then, um, and this is my provocation, is I think there is a case to be made that is both pragmatic but also a humane case to rethink immigration policy. A pragmatic and a humane term in immigration policy. Katrin was born in Bolivia. She came to the UK in 2006, originally on a tourist visa, but then applied successfully for a student visa. Katrina recounted that visas were easier to obtain when she first arrived, but year on year, this has steadily become more difficult, more difficult to secure than that is. Most of her classmates have had application problems, um, some have been refused. The application process has become more demanding She writes, "We have to write our lives." This is a photograph that she took of a forty-one-page application. I mean, I suppose in a way, just use it as a kind of as an illustration of that process of internal regulation that I think is becoming very strong and very pervasive. Some lessons there. I mean, I guess in many respects, what we've tried to do is to try and think about pragmatic, specific um, ideas about how we might shift the debate through an attention to the young lives and the experience of what it means to live lives on the move. The first point about control that I've already mentioned. Young migrants, and it won't be news to many of you, I'm sure, experience the immigration service as an inefficient bureaucracy. I mean, part of, I suppose, one of the things that I think is important to open up is, well, wouldn't it be important to make a political case that may need investment to make the Immigration Service and UK Border Agency, as it is now, work more efficiently. Because at the moment, the young lives that we've paid a serious attention to are fragmented and disorganised by the way in which we manage people flow. And the last point, the limits on access to work and welfare results, I think, in what we might call institutionalised marginalisation. And more than that, I think it results in the social production of suffering—not suffering that there is a kind of consequence of bad luck or or accidents of history, but become kind of a, a, a sort of integral product of the way in which we manage and organise global people flow. Dorothy is from Ghana. When we first met her in March of 2010, she was 19. She came to the UK when she was 16 on a tourist visa. Dorothy stayed with her extended family in London. Realising her visa was coming to an end and that there was no way for her British born son to go to Ghana, she engaged a solicitor to try and fight for her to stay in the country. Dorothy is prohibited from working legally. As a consequence, she sought employment in the informal economy. She was arrested when police were called to the shop that she was applying for because her potential employers were suspicious of her application. She was using a false national insurance card and a false passport. Her legal status means she is, according to the Home Office letter, liable to be detained at any time in preparation for deportation to Ghana, a country that her child has never been to. Dorothy's long-term ambition is to be a midwife, and she's been a birth partner to one of her friends uh, during her time in London. She comments how amazing it is to deliver someone's baby. It's kind of done. her story is more resonating that Shamshur is on the cusp of becoming a father. Now you know I'm not just trying to, to tell a sad story, but I think one of the things that the current way that we, that we manage the experience of young migrants is we create a situation. I mean in order to have a kind of fulfilled sense of who one is, I think it's something I've taken from the social philosopher Jean Berger, um, you have to have a sense of your past, your present. As it moves to the future, and those three things, in order to have a sort of a sustainable life, those three things need to be connected. But somebody like Dorothy is is caught and trapped in an overwhelming sense of the present. She can't go back, and she can't go forward. In a, in a sense, I suppose that's what I, I mean by this characterisation of the social production of suffering. And, you know. There are 30 participants in our study. Two of them contemplate suicide as a consequence. Of the kinds of limitations that I've tried to describe. So how might this kind of pragmatic and humane vision, what might it look like, and might we think about it? Well, another thing that's come out of our qualitative work is a tremendous desire an, act- an activity on, on the part of the, our people in, the people in our study um, for civic involvement. So perhaps a, a different vision might be formulated around harnessing migrant's desire for civic involvement, of building communities of diversity. And perhaps, and I think this is one of the things we're trying to argue, a moral and welfare, welfare case for less regulation. Perhaps in the context of, of the domestic situation, less regulation would facilitate greater social inclusion. Ali lives in East London. It took him two years to travel from Afghanistan to London, but 20 minutes for the UK border agency to turn down his claim for asylum. In the six years it's taken for his case to be processed, he he's been cut, become very much involved in his local community. Ali has had the right to work for nearly a year now, although he's still seeking asylum. Before he had the right to work, he spent time helping elderly neighbours with their gardening on a voluntary basis, and he'd approached the local council with a proposal to rebuild and refurbish unused council property. Recently, he encountered a bed that had been discarded by one of his neighbours in the back garden. Of the block that he shares. He dismantled it, reused it, assembled the wood as a bench, and the bench is used in the street where he lives for his elderly neighbours to sit on. I just wanted to just give this to you as a sort of illustration of the kind of, uh, it's very strong, I mean, it comes out in many of the cases that the young people that we've worked with a very strong sense and desire for participation and involvement. And now bench is a kind of symbol of that, I think. It captures it. You know, what the irony, I think, that emerges from our, our work is that in many cases, young migrants, from many of whom are in very sort of um, uncertain and tenuous positions in London, are perhaps the best examples Of the government's image of what it means to live in a big society. I think there's such a profound irony in that. The social philosopher Michel Foucault wrote The suffering of men must never be the silent residue of policy. The suffering of men must never be the silent residue of policy. You know, I think currently that is profound, that is precisely what we see and hear if we listen carefully to the experiences of young people living lives on the move. Okay, this is the stuff, that, the point that we'll start to argue, I'm sure. As I say, rather than just, you know, um, indulging in kind of lazy sloganeering and posturing, of which there is much in the debate about people flow and migration today, what we've tried to do is to, is to formulate a kind of pragmatic approach. What might it look like? Some of these recommendations are, are bold and perhaps uh, ambitious, but some of them actually are incredibly modest. And just, I just want to talk you through what that might look like. On work, we're suggesting you know, to develop the debate that's already in existence Of declaring a London-wide amnesty, allowing those who are defined as overstayers or otherwise undocumented the right to work, I think it's an inevitability at some point. I mean, there's the argument for that. I think is can can be made in economic terms. Is it economically practical to effectively be channeling young workers into the informal sector? when they could be fulfilling shortages in the care, care um, sector, particularly, and paying tax. The second one, allowing those with temporary leave to remain, the right to work, and the opportunity to support themselves. Lastly, automatically granting national insurance numbers to young migrants over 16 whose cases are currently being processed by the Home Office. I think there's a pragmatic case for each of those proposals. Mm. On immigration processes, perhaps some of these are more contentious, offering young migrants better access to legal advice and greater public investment, even in times of um, financial constraint, investing in welfare organisations dedicated to support Secondly, addressing the failures within the immigration bureaucracy. I mean, it's stunning in a sense to, to, to constantly hear the same stories over and over again. Some years ago, I was involved in a, um, uh, an inquiry into the, um, the experience of, of uh, users of, of the Immigration Service down at Luna House in Croydon, very close to where I was born. And uh, it seems that, you know, the, those who work in the in the um, in UK border in the UK Border Agency, the Immigration Nationality Directorate, was then, are struggling with a system which repeatedly makes mistakes there is documentation and just simply doesn't work. I mean, I think that's, I that's the case. A work group, perhaps here. Yeah, this is something again that comes out of Young Lives. The streamlining documents supporting immigration claims for students and asylum seekers. The fourth one, formal acknowledgment to solicitors and applicants of the documents that are submitted in support of claims. I think they're very kind of modest asks really, provision within the UK border agency of a dedicated responsive, and responsive consultants and a more open tracking system imagine what it, 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 I mean, some of you I'm sure have direct experience this. Imagine what it's like for an identity card to be lost or a passport to be lost. You know, you're, at that point, you're no longer legible in the system. It's, it is that kind of sense of what I try to illustrate through Dorothy's um, life story, of being trapped in a kind of overwhelming sense of the present of being locked in that prison. Lastly then on education, I mean, this is a very sort of changing context now as the universities change. But I know that there's also some um, interest at the moment in trying to make a case for asylum seekers to be charged home fees, rather than being designated as international students and pay international student fees. Perhaps also greater flexibility in the amount of hours that students can, can be allowed to, to work would be the last person to uh, suggest that students should spend more time at work than they do in the classroom. But at the same time, the restrictions on work I think connect to those issues of, of regulation or over regulation, as I, as I would kind of characterise it, that you kind of undermine the tenure of young migrants and their aspirations for their for their futures and for their education.